1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. So this is episode 251, and it's being sandwiched in between two kind of unusual podcasts in the sense that last week I had guests on, and next week I'm going to be doing a super late introduction. And I'll talk more about what that looks like next week. You'll actually see what it is next week. But today we're back to our normal schedule, and that means uh, a time for me to interact with listener questions and reader feedback. So three great bits of information that I get to talk about today, and they come from a diverse range of uh, of sources, and actually probably the most diverse range of sources I've ever had. Uh, one is a Facebook comment. Don't do a lot on Facebook, but it's there. Uh, a YouTube comment. Don't do a lot on YouTube, although this particular video is closing in on 10,000 views, which for someone who doesn't do a whole lot of YouTubing, that's pretty decent. And then the third one is a face-to-face -face interaction. I'm not sure I'll deal with them in that order, but those are the three places that uh, I am interacting with uh, questions, comments, and uh, just conversations. Uh, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or an accusation, which actually one of these is a legitimate accusation, so that's kind of exciting, uh, then, then always reach out, matthew at castingacross.com. Matthew at castingacross.com. I always say this, but even if you, your question, your comment, your, your statement, whatever it might be, doesn't make it onto this podcast, every 10 episodes I do something like this, then uh, I'll still get back to you in one way, shape, or form. So without further ado, let's dive in with the first question that was posed on YouTube. So I had a video that came out three years ago called How to Choose a Waiting Boot for Fly Fishing. How to Choose a Waiting Boot for Fly Fishing. If you want to see my YouTube channel, you want to see me in the various stages my facial hair takes over the course of the year, you can go to YouTube and just put in casting across. I am the first one that pops up. There's not a lot of videos, uh, but this one has gotten a lot of traction, no pun intended, because it has to do with choosing a wading boot, uh, particularly the heavy-duty wading boots, kind of the lightweight wading boots, and then uh, shoes. And I, I walk through kind of the, the pros and cons of each choice, and it's 
hopefully been very helpful to all the folks that have watched it. But recently I received a question on it and uh, it's from Dave, at least his handle is Dave some stuff after that. And he says, I definitely need the corker style, which in this video is like a really heavy duty boot that I talked about. Uh, the, I think the dark horse is the, the boot that I reviewed in this, this video, or I use as an example. It says, I definitely need the corker style, but I have a really wide foot five or six E. That is a really wide foot, Dave. Do you know a brand that makes a wide waiting boot? Okay, so it's a great question. And my, my quick response to him is, I don't have a wide foot, so I've never really investigated. But then I did some investigating. And there are not any brands that pop up right away that offer the same kind of diversity of widths that you would find if you were to go to a shoe store and go to the New Balance aisle, for example, and look for a running shoe and find different uh, different widths in that. So you're not going to have, uh, you know, your size 10 and then your multiplicity of widths. Uh, usually what you find, and this is something that uh, you, you're not going to really know until you go and try it for yourself, is that some boots are cut differently than others. So for example, uh, the widest toe box, now I know that doesn't answer Dave's question, but simply for the sake of, uh, of example, uh, the widest toe box that I have encountered in all the waiting boots I've owned, at least in recent memory, uh, is in the Reddington boot. Uh, and Reddington is, you know, not maybe the first name you think of when you think of waiters and waiting boots, but I actually really like my waiters and my boots that I have from Reddington. And uh, when, when their newest series of boots and waiters was being designed, this is probably four or five years ago, a couple of years before the pandemic, actually sat down and talked with uh, one of the folks that designed these boots. And they talked about how they designed the footbed and the structure of this boot to mimic their favorite hiking shoes, which gave them a lot of room across their forefoot and their toes. Because uh, as you step, your toes spread out, and that actually helps with stability and comfort over the course of the day. I thought that's fantastic. Uh, and I picked up a pair of the uh, lightweight wading boots that, that they have, the benchmark boots actually, uh, in, from that series. So what I don't do and maybe I should do this, is I don't go on try out all the different uh, the wading boots that come out. So if I go to a fly fishing show or I go to a fly shop, I will pick up rods. I will, you know, wiggle rods around. Uh, I will take reels. I'll spin them. I might pop them apart, look at the guts. Uh, I will pick up a pair of wading boots, but what I rarely do, and this might be a beneficial thing, not only for myself as a consumer, but also for casting across, is maybe try on wading boots. Because what you will find is some are cut more generously than others. I know traditionally that folks that have bigger feet have gone with Choda and with Corkers. Those are two of the brands that I just know folks that have had bigger feet that they have really liked. I don't know if that has to do with the fact that these brands are reasonably priced and at the same time built very rugged and durable, or if this is because they are cut for a more generous foot. Uh, but you're, you're going to have to try them on and you're going to have to see what works for you. And it's not just going to be necessarily the length and width of your foot, but it's also uh, kind of like Dave mentioned, he, he wants something that's going to offer a lot more support. But also what kind of uh, sock you're going to be wearing. Is this going to be a three season boot or a four season boot? 
all of those things are worth taking into account. And that is even something where, where if you have a normal sized foot or a proportionate foot uh, for the majority of the population, don't mean to disenfranchise or marginalize anybody there. Uh, but if you have a proportionate foot uh, that is kind of your, your normal foot profile, if you want a bigger sock, that is going to impact the width of the boot that you choose also. Uh, so these are things to take into account, but go to a good fly shop that has a multiplicity of brands and you can try on lots of different things. Uh, look around, see what other stores have different waiting boot options. Uh, you're going to find these at hunting stores because duck hunters are going to be wearing these boots also. Um, look at marine shops because sometimes you'll find that even if they are uh, a, a different sole or something like that, marine shops may have uh, boots made by these manufacturers. Give them a shot. Uh, and is it worth spending an extra 50 or $100 to find something that is comfortable and is going to offer you the support you need? Absolutely. So in, in my, my category of things to not cheap out on, uh, it's fly fishing boots, it's fly line, and it's sunglasses. Uh, I would rather have a less expensive, a lower quality fly rod and have good wading boots, good fly line, and good sunglasses. So uh, Dave, thanks for your question. Hopefully you are well on your way to finding something that fits. I, I did give Dave a suggestion. I did say because of that wide toe box, go to the uh, Reddington boots and look at their highest N1 because that's going to give you a lot more support than the benchmark boot that I use for kind of like my uh, quick fishing and uh, my, uh, uh, my, my fast fishing. Uh, so that was Dave's very good question. So next interaction, next question, comment, uh, it was actually a, a time at Dunks where I hung out with David. So David lives incredibly close to me, and he kind of put some clues together based upon uh, what I talk about on on the podcast and on the on the website uh, about how I live and fish on the North Shore of Massachusetts and the New Hampshire border. And he says I live and fish in that same area too, and so he reached out and we got coffee a couple of weeks back. It was great. It was a lot of fun. I've done that a few times before with folks who listen to Casting Across uh, podcasts as well as read uh, the website, and I always enjoy it. And it's it's uh, just a lot of fun to kind of add that aspect to to what I do. And we talked about a bunch of different things, talked about where he's fishing, how he's fishing, uh, a lot of that sort of stuff. And he had a really good question uh, about nymphing for uh, trout in the ponds around here. So a lot of these ponds are interesting. Uh, ponds on, in this part of Massachusetts, we actually have what they call kettle ponds, and they're just really deep in the middle. Uh, so they're not super easy to fish, particularly if you're using traditional gear. If you're using uh, a floating fly line uh, and and a nine foot or a ten foot leader, they're not super easy to fish when it comes to nymphing or even fishing streamers. I mean, if you have trout rising, then you're you're golden. But the, the fish that are going to be hanging out in these ponds that persist into the summer, even the late spring, they're not necessarily going to be rising all the time. So your best bet is to going to be fishing for them with streamers. But there's a couple of, of problems with this. First of all, if they are really deep, then you're not going to just cast out and let that line sink. You're, it's going to be really difficult to detect strikes. And there's a good chance that you're going to get hung up if you're if you're fishing, even if you're fishing from a kayak, but certainly if you're fishing from the shore. Uh, the other option is to fish with some sort of strike indicator or a dry fly and a hopper dropper kind of rig. But now you have to have an incredibly long leader, which becomes unwieldy to cast. And with all the streamside uh, shrubs and grasses, that becomes difficult to deal with. So what we talked through is a really good approach for fishing uh, these deeper 
ponds or even just a moderately, you know, maybe like even a six or eight foot depth uh, um, shoreline where you have trout that are cruising, where you want to fish nymphs. And it, it takes a, f a few different steps. And this is kind of the, the, the formula that we arrived at as kind of being my favorite and something that that uh, David wanted to, to give a shot. It's using a poly leader. So that's that four to six foot sinking sink tip section that you attach by a loop to loop system on the front of your floating fly line. So you're using your normal five weight, your normal six weight. You put this on there and then using a normal knotless tapered leader or some knotless tapered leader style formula that you have have used uh, of a nine foot leader and then putting a weighted nymph on there, but a, a larger nymph. So we're not talking about a midge. We're not talking about some sort of tiny uh, little bug. We're talking about a, a weighted nymph of, of decent size. So think uh, like a, a tungsten uh, pheasant tail or even something that looks like a helgramite. So you can use a woolly bugger, but you're, you're really fishing as a nymph because what you're doing is you're casting out. You're allowing that sink tip to get you down to where you are at a good depth. And the nice thing about being in this part of Massachusetts is that there's plenty of resources. The same is true across the border in New Hampshire. The same is true in a lot of places I've fished in Virginia and Pennsylvania, where there, there's maps that show what you're dealing with. So although, uh, you know, you, you can't call up the, the state of the Commonwealth and say, hey, I got hung up and I, I lost my leader because uh, your map said it was eight feet, but it was really only five feet. And there was a tree there and I lost my map or I lost my, my leader, uh, you, you do get a kind of a good idea of what's below if you can't see down into the tan and stained water. So casting down, uh, just using experience and trial and error, figuring out how long it takes your poly leader to drag your leader and your fly down to that depth, and then slow strips. And the slow strips uh, need to be at a pace that's not too fast, that's going to jerk that fly out from in front of the face of that fish. But what it'll also do is it'll keep that poly leader kind of dragging at that same depth so that that fly is moving consistently across the, uh, the, that, the water column where you identify that fish are going to be. What that does is a few things. One is it's going to keep you from getting hung up. Secondly, it keeps you active. Uh, sometimes this is not the most effective way to fish or in the sense that it's, it's not super productive. But if you are, are targeting trout late season, uh, is, you know, as you move from the spring into the summer or into early fall, it, they're, they're not going to be keying in uh, a, a lot on moving up into the shallows. So this keeps you active. And then thirdly, it's going to allow you to make contact with your fly and make contact with the fish. So there's a couple other auxiliary benefits to this. First of all, you're going to have bass and panfish that are going after these nymphs like crazy too. In fact, it's that's one of the fun way reasons to fish this way is that it is a total mixed bag, uh, especially uh, up here. We have all sorts of different species. The same is true as you move down south and move out uh, into the into the west. Uh, but using a poly leader, allowing your nymph to dr to drop down to the water column and then slowly stripping so that you're keeping that leader and fly at a consistent horizontal plane moving across the water column uh, and you're, you're having that patience as you're fishing it is a great way to get into trout into these deeper ponds. So um, I'm excited to hear about how David makes out uh, as he does this. Uh, I've implemented this uh, in, in my fishing in the last few years and I find it be very productive uh, for not just for trout um, in the th this time of year, but uh, other times of year as well. And once again, if, hey, if you're in the area, then uh, let me know. Matthew at castingcross.com. We will uh, see if we can get together.
All right. Third comment. This one uh, uh, just came actually just yesterday. So I recently wrote an article, and I'll mention this at the end of the podcast, about headlamps. And uh, when I write uh, kind of like how to to buy something, uh, I try to give general advice. I try to say, these are the things that I look for in a product. And then what I usually do is I usually say, and here's an example of that. Uh, I had an example of a headlamp that I was going to share uh, and I ended up not doing it because, uh, it, it was on sale and it kind of changed the price point. But then I thought, you know what, I should have put that in there. And somebody basically called me out on that. They gave all this good advice, uh, but you didn't give, uh, give a, pr- a product recommendation. Uh, so it, here, here's what Gary says. Gary says, always enjoy your articles, but that one was pretty useless without the suggested headlamp included. Ouch. Useless. Anyway, uh, I, I get it. And it was an accident. I should have had it on there. I, I had the link all ready to go. I didn't put it in. I had a link to a black diamond uh, headlamp uh, that is great because it checks all the boxes of the uh, the kind of the requirements that I think a good fishing headlamp should have. And I just neglected to put it in there because I was uh, messing with some of the price options and, and things like that. So Gary called me out on that and I put it in there. So real quick, and I have no problem with that. I have thick skin uh, and I'm able to take criticism and I usually do add recommendations. So real quick, there are two things I want, I want to mention as it relates to this issue. First one is uh, Black Diamond makes phenomenal headlamps. Uh, I actually have their higher end one coming in the mail sometime in the next week that I have uh, for hunting uh, purposes. I'll use it for anything, everything. I'll use it for you know car repair and I'll use it for uh, um, fly fishing and I'll use it for camping and I'll use it for when the power goes out. But it's primarily going to be my early morning uh, hunting light. Um, and, and the things that I, I, I talk about in the article are something that you should go there and check out. They're the four things that I think are worth considering as you try in a headlamp. Uh, and a headlamp is a great thing when it comes for, for safety as well as for function when you're out on the water. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that I wanted to mention. Secondly, when I do these articles, uh, my intention is not for you to have a gear load that matches mine. There's no official casting across gear checklist that uh, I say, this is really what what you ought to be using. So kind of like I said with the wading boots earlier in the podcast, uh, find something that fits your foot and fits your need. It might be a brand I've never laid eyes on. And I don't I don't suppose that anybody is is assuming that that's what I'm trying to do. Um, But what, what I have tried to do over the last whatever eight years of casting across is uh, share from my experience as a consumer and as my experience in the fly fishing world selling this stuff and writing about this stuff kind of some of the things that I find are the most essential aspects of a particular piece of gear based on normal usage so it's funny uh, again I, I appreciate Gary pointing out that I you know submitted this article before I did my final proofread and re- remembered to include the link. Um, but I've actually gotten criticism because I have uh, suggested uh, particular products. I thought uh, of one article uh, as as I was um, thinking back through the, the annals of, of casting across where I simply used Loon uh, floatant products to illustrate the different kinds of uh, floating products that are out there. So the different kinds of things that you could get, I just used all loon products because one, that's what I had on hand. And secondly, because I wanted to kind of be consistent and, and, and not say, well, this one kind of does the same thing as this one, but I wanted to show the, the distinct products. And I had a couple comments like, oh, you're just trying to sell me loon stuff. 
It's like, well, I, I do use it. It's worth using and it is what I'm showing, but I'm showing the different types of it. So I'm not saying it's like a no-win situation, but it kind of is a no-win situation. But know, know this, if, if I show you something or I talk about something or I write about something, I think it's legitimately worth you considering. But my greater concern, my greater purpose on casting across is that you will take that information, you will filter it through your uh, budget, first and foremost, secondly, your fly fishing, and third, the way you do fly fishing, and that you will then kind of uh, synthesize all that information and make an educated decision. If you happen to land where I land, fantastic. If you happen to do something completely different if to a brand that is antagonistic towards the brand that I suggested, then that's fine by me also. Uh, but I just wanted to, to mention that because it, it, you, Gary's comment was a good comment. Uh, it, it corrected an, an, edit, an editing error that I made, uh, but it also got me thinking about how I do these gear recommendations and gear reviews and how that comes across. All right. Three fantastic uh, bits of feedback that I got to interact with this week. And I always enjoy it. So once again, Matthew at castingacross.com. Love to hear your questions, your comments, and even your accusations. I genuinely do want to hear them. This week on castingacross.com, the first article was called Disaster and Action on Beaver Creek. So this was an unfortunate situation that popped on to, well, everyone's radar earlier this month. Uh, Beaver Creek is a spring creek that flows just to the east of Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, which is about an hour and a half west of D.C. And this was a, a creek that I hadn't fished for years and years and years. I drove over it. I drove past it to get to some of Pennsylvania spring creeks when I was living in Virginia. Uh, but then I finally started fishing Beaver Creek uh, back in 2016, fished it a handful of times, had a lot of nice days there, uh, beautiful uh, meadows and wooded areas. And then just, of course, the, all the um, the cool things that come from it being a, a spring creek, lots of brown trout and some rainbow trout as well. But they had a fish kill. Uh, as of the publishing of this podcast, I don't think they've identified precisely the, um, the, 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 the point source of the pollution, but there is a quarry up in the headwater. There are a number of agricultural sites, large farms, uh, and they've had significant rainfall. So there could be any sort of silt or pollution or anything like that um, that would normally be in those sites, normally be contained, that could have been washed in this stream. And uh, interestingly enough, it really only affected the brown trout. It did a, a real number on the brown trout. So it seems like the rainbows have kind of been unscathed and uh, the state's planning on continuing to stock rainbows. But the, the, the point of this is one to just point out this is unfortunate and this happens and this happens this, this happened before on some very, very famous spring creeks and very famous rivers, and they have bounced back. It's taken time. It's not been fun. It's not been something that is worth just saying, eh, it happens. Uh, but one of the interesting things is that the Maryland, I think it's Department of Fisheries, Department of Natural Resources, whatever it might be for Maryland, uh, they are immediately proposing a um, a moratorium, a, a no more uh, keeping of brown trout anywhere on the stream. So there was a section of stream, and there is still, that is a catch and release fly fishing only. They are now hoping to make brown trout harvesting uh, verboten on the entire stream to allow the uh, brown trout to wildly reproduce and uh, and come back, which is awesome. I mean, say what you will about any other 
facet on the periphery of this issue. The fact that fisheries management is now saying we trust the fish to do this on their own as opposed to introducing another strain, another genetic source of, of fish is progress as far as I'm concerned. It might take time, but it's doing it the right way. And this is also aided by the fact that the prime spawning areas uh, for brown trout, that they, at least that what they say, and, and from my experience, I, I, I would tend to agree based upon uh, the places that they pointed out, were outside of the area that was damaged by this pollution and this fish kill. So all that to say, interesting story. It'll be fun to follow because I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm a generally an optimistic guy, and uh, I've seen this happen in other streams, streams that I've fished, and it's amazing how quickly things recover. Things will never be the same, but you know what? Things aren't the same in streams that don't have massive fish kills over the, a 10-year cycle or a five-year cycle. So keep an eye on this. I'm sure there'll be some story somewhere uh, in the coming weeks as they find out more. Uh, and uh, remember, let's channel all the energy into um, progress rather than anger because uh, you, you can't uh, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube but what you can do is, is clean it up and uh, and learn from it Wednesday's article uh, that just came out was the one called the best fly fishing headlamp and I can see now and as I'm saying that the best fly fishing headlamp makes it sound like I'm gonna tell you what the best fly fishing headlamp is but I tell you what your best fly fishing headlamp is by going through four things that you ought to look for as you uh, as you pick a, a, a headlamp. And uh, I'll, I'll give you what one of them is. One of them is comfort. So it might be inexpensive. Uh, it might uh, have a very bright light. It might have a really long battery life. But if you don't want to wear this thing on your head or this thing moves around as you walk or as you wade, you're not going to want to wear it. So one of the things I talk about the first thing, actually, is that you you want to wear it and you want to be comfortable as you wear it, whether you are wearing it on your hair or forehead or you're wearing it on a hat. Uh, you want to make sure that you have the something that you're going to want to wear and keep on your head. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Fly Fishing Maine Local Experts on the State's Best Waters by Bob Mallard. Uh, I've reviewed a few of uh, Mallard's books on the podcast on the website before. He he lives and fishes in Maine. He is a champion of wild trout, native trout, particularly brook trout. So uh, our our interests converge, and so I have uh, purchased a few of his books and had some good conversations with him at some fly fishing events. But this is a relatively new volume. It came out over the winter. And uh, it. what I like about it, hear me out, is uh, how it is a short book. It is a relatively short book. It's 230 pages. Now, you could write 230 pages on fishing certain counties in Maine. Uh, but the great thing about this book is it is not overwhelming. This is a book you could read. I mean, 230 pages, it's a guidebook you could read. Also, uh, this this guidebook, um, the, the, the style of this guidebook put out by Stackpole is one of my favorites in, in recent memory. Uh, I've got a few uh, in this series, uh, and I think I have another one that's actually coming in the mail in the next couple of days. But if you are planning on fishing Maine, if you already fish Maine, if you think you're an expert at fishing Maine, that this is an essential book to have on your bookshelf. Um, again, it's short, but it's got color photography. It's got up-to-date information, uh, which for a state like Maine, as kind of backcountry as a lot of it is, there's been a lot of changes in regulations over the last five or 10 years. So if you have a guidebook from Maine from the early 2000s, then uh, you're going to want an update. And this one uh, will 
a- absolutely uh, do the trick. So I'll put a link to Fly Fishing Maine, local experts in the state's best waters from Bob Mallard on this podcast show notes over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western i'll be over there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv fun to go like just full-blown redneck on these fish this is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here from the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters enjoy the best fishing panama city beach has to offer during chasing the sun sundays at 9 30 a.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment